I love so much when we can uh, sing our prayers to the Lord, especially to our great shepherd, the good shepherd. I appreciate the fact that uh, you've been in the study of John, which is my favorite gospel. Um, I think I spend time in John almost every day. There's just so much truth there and so much life. And it's such a joy to be able to spend time together today in John. I hope you're reading it during the week. I know Reuben and Yanit, uh, they ask you to read ahead, and it's always good to do that, just to get familiar with the text and with what God wants to say to us. And so I'm, I'm trusting that this will be a, a fruitful time. Also tonight, I mean this afternoon, uh, when you're inside with no windows, what time of day is it? So I hope uh, this morning that we can have some time of discussion at our tables when we get through. And so if uh, you could be thinking of these questions, as we go along, how have you personally heard the voice of Jesus? Okay, what does that mean when we see scripture that says his sheep hear his voice? What does that mean? So be thinking of that as we go through this passage today. Secondly, we're gonna look at verses 14 and 15 and those might be uh, verses that you could discuss together at your table as we conclude today. And so if you just have that in your mind as we go through uh, the word today, and that we will try to have some discussion time at our tables as we conclude. Yes, and amen. You know, we use that word amen. You know how that's translated in the New American Standard translation? So be it, or truly, truly. If you were to look at the Greek, and as John 10 begins, truly, truly, that's actually amen and amen in the Greek. And so you might just make that side note. That's just sort of a fun remembrance. Anytime you see truly, it's, it's amen and may it be. Now, in verse 6, John actually called the first five verses of this chapter a figure of speech. Other translations, even at the top, label it a parable of the good shepherd. So it's an analogy, a parable sometimes, it tends to lean toward being a metaphor. If you're an English grammar nut today, uh, those are some of the things you might see in this passage. And we have some of those here. Any, any English grammar nuts? Yes, I thought so, okay? <laughs> and uh, it's always fun just to be able to delve into the language and see what is being said. And so let me read, if I could, the first section. And we're gonna look at uh, several sections today, actually about six sections. We're going to divide this chapter into six parts, and I'll read the first part, and then we'll talk about it, and then the second part, and we're going to go through it that way today, if that's okay. But let me set us up with just a couple of other things before we read. Uh, the timing of this particular chapter, um, with Jesus' appearance at the Feast of Dedication, we see the festival cycle as described in chapters 5 through 10 coming to a close. So he's been at these dedication services. He's been in Jerusalem uh, as far as the timing. And it actually begins the way it ends um, where the Jews, and especially the Pharisees, are persecuting Jesus because of what he's saying in these discourses, in this setting there in Jerusalem. They did not like him. And we're going to see in this scripture, we've already seen in the last several, several chapters you've looked at, how the Jews just seem to hate Jesus. Why? Because he was focusing on his identity. 
in all these chapters, he wanted people to understand who he really was and who he is today to us. And they did not want to hear it. Many times, anytime he would identify himself with the Father, especially being one with the Father, they saw it as blasphemy. And so all throughout these chapters that we've been studying, you see the Jews, especially the Pharisees, getting really upset at Jesus. They just did not like to hear his words. And so he was an outcast. He was, uh, he was a blasphemer. He was not one they wanted speaking to the people. The religious leaders just kept putting him down and putting him down over and over again. Now, if we look down in verses 23, 22 and 23, we'll see more of the location here. It says, At that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon, a covered area, which is probably a wise thing to do during wintertime in Israel, uh, maybe more of a rainy season there. And so he was in a covered area when, when these messages were being delivered. And there were people all around in that area, very popular spot for folks. And so that's where this actually takes place. Now we'll get to verses one through six. Uh, part one, Jesus' parable of the good shepherd. It says, truly, truly, I'm going to say this. Anytime you see truly, truly at the beginning of a chapter, you have to know it's connected to what came before it. And so as we looked at chapter 9 last week, we need to realize this is still connected. You don't say truly, truly at the beginning of a chapter unless there's something that precedes it that's connected. So truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his what? They know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, and they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Okay, now, who's the audience? Jews, Pharisees. Uh, they did not understand fully who this individual was, and yet he's trying to help them understand his identity. Now, let's look at these six verses and think about, okay, what could the sheepfold be? You know, literally... In the time of Christ, sheepfolds appeared sometimes in cities or near cities. They also appeared out in the countryside. And what you normally would have with a sheepfold would be maybe a wall uh, that they would then build other walls connected to, like made out of bushes, vines, uh, branches that they could find, if they could find some there, rocks. Sometimes they would pile up rocks and they would make a sheepfold. And if it was near a city, Many times as flocks came with different shepherds, there would be multiple flocks inside the sheepfold. Sometimes a shepherd might build his own fold if he were out in the hillside just by getting stones and bushes and thorns and you know, brambles and sort of stacking them up because at night there are a lot of predators. If you wanted to protect your sheep, give them security and peace 
then you would find some place to keep them at night away from the predators. And so here you find the setting that Jesus is describing is something that was common to probably all the Jews in Jerusalem. Many of them, whether they had been brought up in the city or they had grown up outside in the countryside, they understood the life of a shepherd. And shepherds during that time were not looked on highly. They were pretty much looked down upon, just thought these are just uneducated scum. That's the only job they can get is being shepherds. They've got to sleep outside a lot of time. They've got to be nomadic to some extent, following these sheep around. And so they were not looked upon highly. And again, as we get into this, you see the love of Jesus for everybody. The sheepfold is basically Judaism during the time of Christ. Uh, you might describe it as the Jews themselves, individuals from whom Jesus would call out his first followers. And so here are all these sheep in the sheepfold. Also, thieves and robbers are mentioned in this passage. Who would those individuals be? Who would you think? Thieves and robbers. It's possible. It's also, it's possible that they are false messiahs. You know, there have been a number of those individuals coming in saying, I'm the Christ, follow me. And so it's possible that those were individuals and those thieves and robbers, they don't go through the door. They climb up some other way, the scripture says. They try to get to the sheep uh, in some stealthy type of way. They slip in among them and they try to then um, lead them astray or just steal them, thieves and robbers. And so these could be uh, false messiahs. Sometimes I see it even as the devil who likes to sneak in and just steal God's sheep. Those who should belong to him, he wants to still kill and destroy. And we'll see that. Who is the shepherd of the sheep in this passage? Jesus. No question about the identity of the shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd is Jesus. Who is the doorkeeper in this passage? In verse 3, to him the doorkeeper opens. Who's the doorkeeper, you think? Could be Jesus. It could be, and this, I mean, there's a lot of thought about who it could be. It could be John the Baptist was a doorkeeper. He came preparing the way for the true Messiah. The one who perhaps uh, prepared the way for Christ to enter upon the scene so as to call his sheep unto himself. And so it could even be John the Baptist. Now we, later we see Jesus identifying himself as the door. The doorkeeper could have been somebody like John who just made the way for Christ to come in. And who are the sheep? Yeah, there we go. I think I hear some in this room. Yeah, the sheep become the followers of Jesus. And those are the individuals who truly recognize him for who he is, his true identity, and follow him. And who would the strangers be in this passage? Verse 5, a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Who would strangers be? Okay, probably lost. Pharisees probably are the, the best number. The, the true believers of Christ were called out from, really, 
being connected to or being a part of uh, the Pharisaical leadership, they saw Christ as their leader. And so they left the sheepfold at the voice of the Good Shepherd and said, we're going to follow you. Now, it's really neat that hearing the shepherd's voice as described in this passage really means we've entered into a personal, intimate relationship with him, right? And so, Jonathan, if we hear God's voice, that means we're his child, right? Which is exciting. The children who are not born again, who are not called, as it says, as he called his own out of the sheepfold, those who are not called really don't recognize his voice. Now, if you're in a genuine relationship, that voice is clear. Is it not? Okay. Reuben, would Janet recognize your voice if you were at Walmart and called out to her? <laughs> Depending on which voice you use, she would. She would. If you're in a tight, intimate relationship with somebody, your close relationship, friend, partner, spouse, they recognize your voice because they have spent time listening to the voice. And guys, when your wife calls you, you recognize her voice, don't you? Oh, yeah. And uh, I won't go there with that anymore. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes. We better recognize that voice, hadn't we? Or we're in trouble. So recognizing the voice of someone means that there's an intimacy that's been developed over time. And there's a growth so as to be able to hear that voice and recognize the voice. And I love in verse 3 where Jesus calls his own sheep by name. And if you're in an intimate relationship with Christ, what do the sheep do? They follow the voice of the shepherd. So where Jesus is, there his followers will be also. Amen? It's pretty exciting. I appreciate Jerry Rankin being here who worked with the International Mission Board. And I just met Jerry for the first time this morning. They work with missionaries. And some of you have been missionaries or you have served. Why? Because you heard the voice of God calling you to go where he was working in another country. And it's pretty exciting when we just allow the voice of God to guide us. And he uses his word. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will take his word. He'll speak to our hearts. And all of that's a part of the call. What he's spoken, what's been recorded that he's spoken. What he still speaks to us becomes rhema. It becomes like a fresh word to us. And so genuine sheep will hear his voice. Not just when they're saved. In order to be saved, you have to have that sense of God calling us unto himself. And you hear his voice and you respond. But then all throughout our lives, there's a sense of God continuing to speak to us in order to see His will accomplished in our lives. I know if we, in our own power and at our own bidding, go places in the name of Jesus, the fruitfulness is not there, and many times the struggle is so great that it becomes very obvious to us, I don't need to be here. 
You know, there are a lot of pastors that way. They got into preaching, not because of a relationship of intimacy, but because they just thought this was a really cool thing. I had some great experiences at camp, and I think I, I want to be a preacher. And I've known preachers who got saved in their own pulpits, who did not hear the voice of God until later in life, and they were preaching, and God convicted them, and they got saved. I know one man uh, in a church was just like that. But hearing God's voice is primary for our whole walk as a Christian. As sheep, when we go through this life, if we don't see the importance of hearing the voice of God, our life will often be filled with struggle because we're just doing things in our own strength. Instead of being with Jesus. Is that understandable? If you're walking with the shepherd, his rod and his staff are there to protect you as we walk through those valley times. And a lot of you as senior adults, and even some of you as young adults, you may have been through some valleys. And to hear the voice of the shepherd, comforting, reassuring, speaking peace over you, for those who've walked closely with Jesus, you would think, how can anyone make it without the close intimacy of being connected to the good shepherd? Let's look on, shall we? The next section is verses 7 through 18. And Jesus, it's Jesus' application of the parable. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I'm so glad. That's the kind of life Christians get to experience is a pasture-filled life. Verse 10 the thief, on the other hand, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they'll become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative." I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the Father. And since we just finished with verse 18, let me ask you this question at verse 18. Who killed Jesus? We did. Who else? Who killed Jesus? You know, a lot of people think the Romans killed him, or the Jews, but Jesus said, I have the authority where... I choose to lay it down. See, that's what a good shepherd does for the sheep. A hireling, somebody who is not the shepherd, the owner of the sheep, flees when there are challenges. 
But what does the good shepherd do who owns the sheep? He lays his life down for the sheep. And Jesus identified himself as the door of the sheep. And then he also is um, the good shepherd. Now, there are seven I am statements in the book of John. You've probably heard most of those already. Uh, first came from chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The next one came in John 8. I am the light of the world. Of the world. And then the third is, I am the gate or the door for the sheep. And that sounds a little strange when Jesus said, I am the door. But if you built a sheepfold out in the countryside, what you would have to do is you, you didn't have a way to make a gate. And so the shepherd would lay down at the spot where the gate would be, if that makes sense in our thinking. And so Jesus said, I am the gate. I am the door. In other words, in order to come into the security of being my children, my sheep, you have to go through me. I am, as he goes on to say, the good shepherd. And so he's the one who makes the way for us to be able to even have a relationship with him. And then in John uh, 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And then in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John 15, I am the true vine. This is the identity that Jesus wanted his followers to understand. I am. Now, why did the Pharisees get so upset at that? Because how did God identify himself with Moses? I am. And so they picked up on that phrase just like that. And as soon as Jesus started saying, I am the Son of God, I am one with God. The Father and I are one. I am the Good Shepherd. I am the light of the world. They just got really upset. And that's why they wanted to kill Jesus, because he was blaspheming. He was identifying himself as God. And they did not like that at all. In their minds, there was one God alone. the great I am. And so when Jesus came in this chapter, and twice we see it, where he's identifying himself as the gate and the good shepherd by saying, I am. Oh boy, that just got him so upset and so challenged. And, you know, somehow in God's plan, I think knowing that we needed a Savior who would die in our place to pay for our sins. Somehow, sovereignly, God allowed those Jewish leaders to be upset. It became the path through which the Good Shepherd would demonstrate to us how much He genuinely loved us. And even though we can be harsh toward them, somehow they were probably acting just like we often act when we reject the Good Shepherd. You know, Jesus identified himself as the Good Shepherd. You know what that good means? It means true. It means 
I am not only loving you to the point where I'm willing to sacrifice my life for you, but he is the true shepherd. All these others who'd come before him, not true shepherds of the sheep. In verse 14, he says, after he said, I am the good shepherd, he says, I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And that word for know is gnosko. Two Greek words for know, one is oida, the other is gnosko for the most part. And oida is the kind of word we've talked about before in here where you just gain knowledge. Like you have knowledge of Julie Zachary, okay? How many know, know a detail, a fact about Julie Zachary? Okay, you know, you know facts about her. Okay, gnosko means you're in a relationship. Now, yost, gnosko's Julie. Does that make sense? They have a close, personal, intimate relationship, and she cares for Yost a whole lot because they're, they're one, they're, they're intimate. That's the word that Jesus used here. He says, I'm the good shepherd, and I have an intimate, close knowledge of and personal relationship with my own. And I tell you, that gets me excited. Jesus doesn't just want to know about us he wants to be in this close intimacy with us. But he also said, my own gnosko me. Now that comes back on us. I did a lot of marriage counseling when I was younger. And when you get married to somebody, you make a commitment, a covenant commitment that's not breakable, honorably before God. And you may think you know somebody when you first meet them. <laughs> Boy, that laugh explains it all. <laughs> now, I've been married 47 years now, and I'm still, and, and had dated my wife three and a half years before we got married. And so we've known each other 50 and a half years, and I still can't figure her out at times. <laughs> I'm still trying to get to know her better. And when a relationship is established between us and God, we make a commitment that for the rest of our lives in this holy relationship, we're going to purpose to know God intimately. He knows us, and we know that's true because He knows everything about us. He saw us before we were born. He shaped us inside our, our mother's womb. But He's calling us as sheep to say, I want to know you. So why are you in this class today? Probably because you have a desire to know God better. You're senior adults. Have you not heard the Bible taught before? For how long? Joy loves the Word of God, but she can't get enough of the Word of God because it's connected to the Good Shepherd. A relationship is there. And so I'm, I'm blessed all the time as I see some of you saints in the Lord who have taught God's Word, who've studied God's Word, who have known, you know God's Word, the written Word, but you're, you're stretching for more because there's a relationship there. And you see, you can't exhaust a relationship. And I'm so glad Christianity is based on a relationship. It cannot be exhausted. There's always more to be learned in a relationship. And you know, as you hit different, different states in life, I appreciate you young adults being here. You've got some different times coming in front of you. Should God give you the grace to live to where you're a senior adult and have gray hair? 
you've got these different seasons you'll go through, and in every season you go through with somebody else, things change and there's more to be learned. Guess what? We get to spend an eternity with God, and I've got a feeling we're going to keep learning more about Him all throughout eternity. I don't think we're going to arrive and just know everything. There is to know about what it means to be a child of God, a sheep. And we're so needy. You know, sheep are needy creatures. And what we find in our relationship with the shepherd is everything that we need. Mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. Everything we need if we purpose to know him more and go deeper in our relationship with Him. Okay, let's look at the next session, section, uh, verses 19 to 21. It says a division occurred. <laughs> there it is again. Okay, here's a division. Occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to Him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And so there's that reaction that Jesus always seemed to encounter when he declared his identity. He said, I'm the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the light of the world. Anytime he used an I am statement and tried to identify himself and help people understand who he was when he walked on this earth, he met this opposition where some said, man, he's a demon. And then others were looking at his works and saying, now, now wait a minute. Who can do all these miracles? Who can open the eyes of a person who's been blind? Who can raise somebody from the dead? Who can do this miraculous type of work? Surely, and even is there the possibility that he's the Messiah? That he truly is who he says he is? Now, Jesus then explains his relationship with the sheep then in verses 22 to 30. Let's read those together. At that time, <clears throat> the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I don't know how Jesus took that. He'd been telling them all along, I am the Christ. This is my identity. I'm the Messiah. I am the, the Son of God. I am God. And they kept just not understanding what He said. But Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What a powerful statement from Jesus. And for us as sheep, what a great passage about assurance of salvation. You don't earn your salvation. It's given to you as a free gift by a good shepherd who loved you, who laid down his life to pay for your sin. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus and you believe in him as the Son of God, the sacrifice of God for you to pay for your sin, then you're born again into an eternal relationship with the good shepherd. 
with God the Father. And that means forever. God gives you this gift. And if you're truly His child, it is yours forever. Hallelujah. How about if I sin? Hallelujah, there's a loving Father who does what to us if we disobey? He disciplines us. In church, we've not heard that message today. But to me, many times that's a sign that I'm His child. He loves me so much that He disciplines me in order to make me more like His Son, more like the Good Shepherd in my walk with Him. And we don't often think, what is the connection between my sin and what I'm going through in the circumstances of my life. And we never even pause to say, Father, is this your hand of discipline? Is there something you're saying to me so that I might become even more so like your son Jesus? But all along, there's a father who says, I give eternal life to my sheep and they will never perish. Isn't it good to have that assurance and confidence? I look at my wife. I am married to that woman. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> and I am purposing, purposing to always be married to that woman. That was the covenant I entered into. And see, that's the picture that God wants us to have when it comes to eternal life in our relationship with Him. It's eternal. And He even gave us husband and wives as models for that, to understand that that's the picture He wanted to keep. That's why the laws about marriage are so rigid sometimes. Because God wants to preserve the eternal nature of a covenant relationship that we have with Him. What a glorious, blessed truth. We must press on. Verses 31 to 39. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They are always picking up stones to throw at Jesus, weren't they? We just don't like what you're saying. We're just going to stone you. And so they would pick up stones. But Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? See, he was trying to get them to go back and just think. To think, even to use their heads to think about his identity and who he was from what they had seen. The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for the blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said to you, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say to him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Not sure what that would have been for Jesus, like for him. Always having to run from mobs. Always having to escape because they wanted to throw rocks at him and stone him. You ever been hit by a rock? I've been hit by dirt clods and maybe a few rocks when I was a kid. It's hard to imagine 
the anger. Because behind those rocks there would have been a viciousness, a religious viciousness that just said, we just don't like what you're saying. We don't believe you. You're messing up our religion. You're messing with what we believe. You're messing with our religious thought, our heritage, what we understand. We just want to pick up a rock and do you in. Hard to imagine that anger. He just kept saying, okay, look at all these good works. Are you going to stone me for raising somebody from the dead, for healing somebody who couldn't see? And again, he was trying to get them to just pause and think. Verse 40, And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. And many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And look at this wonderful last verse. Many believed in him there. Hallelujah. <laughs> Through all the hardness and all the division and the strife with the Jews in the sheepfold, there were some who believed. Actually, it says many. They put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Good Shepherd. And they came to know Him gnosko-wise. Intimately. And that's what Christ is still wanting to do today. Let's take time at our tables, could we? And let's discuss, if we could, uh, verses 14 and 15. Maybe somebody could go back and read verses 14 and 15. And then uh, talk about what it means today for people to hear the voice of God. Can I take a few minutes and do that? And then we'll close in just a few moments.